beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, in our lives, the Lord God constantly puts us before choices. Some choices are easier to make than others. For example, choosing what to wear in the morning or what to eat for breakfast. Other choices are not so easy, such as how do I deal with those in authority over me and who want me to do something that I think is wrong, but others don't. What do I do? Do I submit and go along with the others, or do I just disobey? Time and again, we have to ask ourselves what the will of the Lord is. How do we know? The man with David seemed to know exactly what the will of the Lord is. As far as they were concerned, it was God's will to get rid of that wicked king, Saul. They didn't have a doubt about that. That is the opportunity they had been waiting for and which God had created for them to get rid of that evil king. But are they right about this? For as we can see from the text, David disagrees with them. He does not think it is the Lord's will to take Saul's life. How does David know? How can he be so sure? How can any of us be sure about the choices that we make? Well, that's what I will preach to you about. It is about the will of the Lord as revealed in David's sparing of Saul's life. We will look at two things. First of all, David's dilemma, and secondly, David's resolution. David's situation at this moment is quite desperate. Saul had been pursuing him for some time. He's a man on the run. Saul wanted to get rid of him in the worst way. Why? What had David done that would make Saul so angry? with him. At first, King Saul was quite fond of David. It even says in chapter 16, verse 21, that he loved David greatly and made him his armor-bearer even, and he became a close companion of his. Whenever Saul felt down and depressed, he would call for David so that he would play the harp or the lyre for him, which would soothe his mood and make him feel better. After David killed Goliath, Saul even wanted David to become his son-in-law and gave him a high rank in his army. And this also pleased the people, including Saul's officers. David became a hero. Everybody loved him. But at this point, things started turning sour. For now, David was receiving greater honor than Saul. When the soldiers came home from fighting against the Philistines, the women would now sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And we know that in 1 Samuel 18, verse 8, that Saul was angry at this. 
It says there that the refrain galled him. He was now afraid that David would supplant him from the throne. Such fear, of course, was not without foundation. For earlier, Samuel had told Saul that God would take his kingdom away from him and give it to another. And that is because Saul had become arrogant and he did not want to give glory to God for his successes. He was totally self-absorbed. It was all about him. Not only that, but David had also already been anointed by Samuel. Mind you, Saul did not know about this, for this was done in secret. But nevertheless, Saul saw how God's hand was with David and not with Saul. The Lord God had turned away from him. Time and again we read this. And instead of looking at himself for the cause, he looked outside of himself. He blamed David for his waning popularity. And he blamed David for God going against him. Think about it. Isn't that what sinful people do? You and I, isn't that our tendency too? Especially people who do not want to change blame others for their problems. When there is turmoil in their lives, it's always somebody else's fault. To blame others is much easier. It's hard for you and me to look at ourselves. For that means that we have to repent from our sins. We have to admit that we were wrong. And we have to humble ourselves. That's hard for us. And Saul did not want to repent. And so he became an instrument in the devil's hands. That's clear from what happens next. Saul became so angry with David that he began to kill him, that he began to plan to kill him. David had at first refused to take Saul's oldest daughter as his wife and had in the meantime been given into marriage to another man. But now Saul insists that he marry his second daughter, Michael. This time, not because he's eager to honor him and to have him as part of the family. No, his motivations were quite sinister. Saul knew that David would be required to pay a dowry, and the dowry that he requested from David was that he had to kill a hundred Philistines and provide proof. Saul thought that in this way, David's life would be put into danger and that he would be killed. But as it turns out, David was also successful in this matter. And then Saul becomes even more blatant in his attempt to kill him. Pretending to want him to play the harp for him, Saul called him to his side and tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him. He tried this even on two occasions. And when this also fails, he elicits the help of his son Jonathan. He wants him and his men to kill him. But Jonathan flatly refuses. Jonathan and David are kindred spirits. And that makes Saul even angrier. He even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. It's at that point that David knew he had to flee. And Jonathan also warns him about his dad's evil intentions. And Saul chases David from one end of the country to the other. 
David first went to Gath, to the Philistines there. But when it was discovered that David was their arch enemy, David feigns madness and he escapes from the Philistines. And then David ends up in the cave of Adullam. And then he sends his parents, his brothers, and their families to Moab for protection there. David, however, remains on the run. Finally, he comes in the wilderness of Maon, but Saul finds out about this through treachery and pursues him there with a large army, and he completely surrounds him even. There was no way of escape for David, but then just in the nick of time, Saul has to withdraw because he receives the message that the Philistines are attacking elsewhere. And David, once again, is giving, given some breathing room. And that brings us to the events of our text. For now he ends in the desert of Engedi. And Engedi is a place on the western coast of the Dead Sea. It's a mountainous region with many caves in it. Some of them are quite large and very deep. And David and his men, they hide in the deep recesses, the innermost parts of the cave. It's a dark place, but not only, not only in the literal sense, but also in the figurative sense. For here you have David, a man after God's own heart, who wants to serve the Lord with all his heart and who is dedicated to him and his service, and who had already been anointed as king by Samuel. But now look at what's happening to him. His life is in constant danger. Saul, the anointed of the Lord God, hunts him down, as David himself says, as if he were a dog or a flea. He hunts him down like an animal. How is it possible that God would allow this? How can you speak here of God's guiding hand in your life? Would that not be enough to turn you away from God and his church, and his people. Think about it, what would you do? You're a member of the church. You want to serve the Lord with all your heart, but you are being unjustly treated and slandered. You're accused of something you didn't do. And the people of the church also, many of them go along with it. And even the church consistory council has a hard time dealing with it all. They're not all listening, and you're being shunned by a good part of the congregation. You see, those things also happen within our churches. What would you do when that happens to you? Would you then not want to turn away from the church, perhaps even turn away from God? And don't think that David himself does not entertain thoughts similar to this. From the various psalms that he writes, we know that he is quite distraught at times. He sees things very darkly. At times he even questions whether or not God has totally abandoned him. Think of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 55, he complains about the friends with whom at one time he went to the temple, who were near and dear to him, yet who later betrayed him. He sees how treacherous people are, even in the church. In the previous chapter, we can read about the men of Ziv, brothers in the Lord, 
who had betrayed David and told Saul about David's hiding places. And there you have the primary example of the treachery, treachery of man. It is because of their evil actions that David could not remain in the wilderness of Maon and that he had to flee to the caves of En Gedi. David is surrounded by enemies. And then a wonderful opportunity presents itself. Saul appears at the entrance of the cave where he and his men are hiding. He's alone. He came there to answer the call of nature to relieve himself. And David and his men are in the back of the cave, but Saul's silhouette is clearly visible from there. They can see him, but Saul cannot see them. Saul is standing in the light and they are in the darkness. And it's understandable that the men with David see this as a great opportunity to get rid of Paul. And that is clear from what they said to him. Here's the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. That's what those men say. Well, Nowhere are these words recorded in the Bible. It may be that God had spoken these words to David, but we don't know within, within what context. Not everything is recorded in the Bible. It may also be that these men made these words up because they were convinced in their own minds that this is God's doing and that God gives them this wonderful opportunity. And the argument seems sound doesn't it? Look at the kinds of things Saul has done. Saul is a murderer. We read in chapter 21 that he killed all those priests in Nob in cold blood. Eighty-five of them were struck down with a sword without a pang of conscience. And as if that were not enough, Saul also sent his men to kill the rest of the people, all the men and women, the children and infants, the cattle, donkeys and sheep. Nothing and no one was spared. Saul ruled with an iron hand. He was a despot. Everybody was afraid of him. Why should David not kill him? Indeed, why shouldn't he? We come to the second point. After the words of his men, David stealthily creeps up to where Saul was, has squatted, but all he does is cut off a corner of his robe. Now, David's men will have been amazed at David's actions. How could he let such an opportunity pass him by? If he had killed Saul, then he and his men would once again be able to taste freedom. And so would the rest of the country. They would be able to breathe again and no longer have to fear for their lives at the hands of cruel Saul. And David would also be able to get his parents back from Moab so that they could back to their farms in, in Bethlehem. And furthermore... Wasn't even Jonathan the eldest son of Saul against his own father? Didn't Jonathan even support David? Why didn't David get rid of Saul? 
Why did he do what he did? What a lost opportunity. And indeed, it is true that God had given Saul into David's hands. But what do you do with such an opportunity? When God gives you a sure way out of a difficult situation, what do you do? What is your responsibility? Well, then you seek to do God's will, not your own. But you may ask, how do you know what God's will is? Well, listen to what he says to his men. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Pay careful attention to these words. These are remarkable. Think about it. In the first place, David calls Saul his Lord, with a small L, his master. He shows him respect. He also calls him the Lord's anointed, which is capitalized. He uses God's covenant name for that, Yahweh. He realizes that God is the one who puts Saul in the position that he did. It is not just up to him to get rid of him. On the contrary, there is not a hair on his head that thinks about harming Saul. It even says in verse 5 that David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. The NIV says that he was conscience-stricken. He even thought that that was something he should not have done. For even though he did not harm Saul physically, he nevertheless violated his property. David, it says in verse 7, persuaded his men with these words. In the original language, it actually says that he tore them apart with these words. Same word is used of Psalm Samson when he tore apart the lion. And David uses this strong language to make sure that he understood that they are not to lay one finger on Saul. Why would David be so insistent on this? Had Saul not violated his own office? Had Samuel not said to Saul that God was no longer with him and that his kingdom would be taken away from him? Had Saul not squandered his right to be king over Israel? Indeed, his right to live? Well, that's not how David sees it. David shows restraint. If David had acted according to the flesh, to his own desires, that he would have gone with his sinful, his natural inclinations. And then he would certainly have killed him on the spot. For David had shed, shed the blood of many before this, and he will shed the blood of many after this. But not in this case. And do you know why? Well, because David does not become king by way of rebellion or, revol or revolution. God did not tell him to do this. He did not want to take the honor of kingship upon himself. The Lord God had already promised him that he would make him king in his time. And David knew that he had to wait for the Lord to accomplish that. Can you imagine if David had listened to his men? Saul 
as we will see this afternoon, the Lord willing, still had a lot of support in Israel. For he knew how to get enough people on his side so that he could remain in power. He was a, smart, he was a master politician, and he knew how to get a significant portion of people on his side by bribing them, by favoring them above others, by making them afraid of him. You see, that's how dictators work. That's how all evil men operate. As long as they have a certain power base from which to operate, they don't care about the rest. Saul is not a shepherd. He did not care about his sheep. Saul was not interested, was interested only in his own honor and glory. But don't think that when David uttered these words to his men, that he uttered these words on impulse. It wasn't just an automatic reaction. No, it was a response that showed a lifetime of preparation. It was a measured response. You see, David was a man of God. He was a man of integrity. David showed in his whole life that he wanted to walk a straight line. Throughout his whole life, he sought out the will of the Lord. Although he failed miserably at times, it was his aim always not to impose his will upon God's will. Isn't that often what you and I do as well? We want something very badly. And then we find a way of fooling ourselves into thinking that this is the opportunity the Lord has created for us. It's the Lord's will. He wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And then we will stand up against anyone who gets in our way and we say, well, let the fight begin. I'm convinced that I'm doing what's right. But what happens then? Well, because of your insistence on your own way, God's church, or our marriage, or our business, or our government and their officials are undermined and thrown into turmoil or torn apart, often we take things into our own hands because we do not want to wait and we do not want to be inconvenienced, and we do not want others to tell us what to do. We're impatient and critical. We're all like that. Me too. By nature, we do not like any authority, even though such authority is God-given. We do not want to be restrained by a pesky government with its regulations. We don't want to accept the authority of the office bearers either, if their decisions don't suit us, we decide what's best for ourselves. And we do not want to wait for the Lord to give us clarity through prayer and through consultation with brothers and sisters in the Lord. We do not want to humble ourselves. We want the freedom to do what we want. And we do not like to suffer either. And so we will try to avoid suffering.
If we want to speed things up by taking an unlawful shortcut, or we do nothing in the hope that the problem will go away by itself. David, thankfully, however, is patient in this instant. He knows that as long as he walks a straight line, that then God will act in his time. God will make it clear to him when the time is right. And God had promised him his kingship. And God will realize those promises. And he will realize them in his time. If David was meant to be king, then he will become king. He doesn't need to help God along a little bit. Of course, it's true that sometimes it's hard to be patient, isn't it? I know I'm by nature also an impatient man. And it means that sometimes we have to suffer for a little while. But isn't that what being a Christian is all about? Look at how the Lord Jesus himself suffered. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and following. For you, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. He waited for the time to be ripe. He waited for his Father in heaven to act. And throughout it all, he kept God's commandments perfectly. And Jesus had great respect for the position of God that he had, for the position God had given to Pontius Pilate and to Caiaphas, the high priest. He recognized that God the Father had given these men the authority to rule. Oh yes, they abused their authority and they did so in a horrible way for they nailed an innocent man to the cross. But it was God's will that Christ would die for the sins of many. And God used the evil actions of Pilate to bring about the salvation of man. Of man. And that is how God acts in our lives, brothers and sisters. Whatever adversity comes our way, God will turn it to our good. He certainly did so for David, didn't he? It's also what he did for Joseph. His brothers treated him with contempt and they sold him into slavery. Let's not forget who these men were. These were the patriarchs. Twelve tribes of Israel, God's church, came out of these men and yet they sold their brother into slavery. But nevertheless, Joseph says later on that even though they meant it for evil, the Lord meant these things for good. Joseph did not see himself as a victim. As we hear all around us in this world, everybody's a victim. 
but he sees himself and conducts himself as a thankful child of, the go of, of God. He knew that his life was in God's hands and that whatever adversity God would send him, that he would turn it to his good. Joseph also trusted. That's also what we must do today, brothers and sisters. When men do evil acts, God does not want us to play the victim, but to show forth his goodness and kindness and patience. He tells us even to love our enemy. He tells us not to be rebellious, but to be suppliant. God will turn all things, no matter what, to our good. And we must place our lives into God's loving hands. We may never unlawfully take things into our own hands. Oh, sure, we may not allow those in authority over us to make us do anything against God's will. But if that's not the case, we should be obedient to those in authority over us. Just like David was here in this terrible situation. And well, you may think to yourself, well, does that mean that we always have to remain passive? When suffering comes our way, do we then not act? Yes. Oh, yes, you do. Christ certainly did. He spoke up. He walked a straight line. He exposed evil like no other. But Christ did these things. Why? Because he loved God's creation. He loves his father and he loves his neighbor. He has a love for his father in heaven. He was not rebellious. He hated rebellion. No, what he wanted was for men to repent. He wanted to promote God's kingdom. He wanted to bring glory to his name. Nothing and no one could dissuade him from that task. He wanted all men to worship God. And he did it all in love, not in anger or out of stubbornness or out of selfish ambition. And that should also be your aim, my aim. So how do you think we're doing as church community, brothers and sisters? What kind of message are we sending to the world? Does God's love and kindness and patience show through us? Or do they see us as people who insist on their own way, no matter what? How are you and I winning others for Christ? How do we promote God's kingdom? Do they say the love that we have for God and for our neighbor also during this difficult time of a pandemic. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Oh, sure, it's not always clear, even from the Bible, how to act in certain circumstances. The Bible is not like a cookbook that has a recipe for every situation. 
And the answers from God do not fall out of the sky either, nor does he tap you on the shoulder and tell you exactly what course to take in life. But do you know what he does do, brothers and sisters? He does give you his word. He does give you his spirit. And he gives you his laws so that you may know right from wrong. What is the summary of the law? Love God and your neighbor as yourself. And that is what you must consider every time you make a decision, an important decision, especially during difficult times. It's our inclination to set certain portions of God's word aside because it is not convenient for us at the moment. And we'll rationalize our actions in a pious way. It's God's will that we do this. Look at the easy way that he has given us out of the situation. That's how David's men rationalize things. By God's grace, in this case, David clearly sees God's will. Oh, sure, as we will see this afternoon, David is not always that discerning. There are times when David does set God's laws aside. But then God brings him back. And David allows God to do that. He's not stubborn. He's not full of pride. He always wants to be right before God. And so do you want to know what the will of the Lord is in your life in certain circumstances? Then listen. Listen to God's word. Examine yourself. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit or anything that advances your own agenda. And be patient and compassionate. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if that's your aim always and you pray about it, then life is not so difficult. And then you will know how to act in certain instances. He will be your guide now and forever. Amen. Let us now sing together from hymn 63, the stanzas 1 and 4. It's the Lord's Prayer and also dealing with the Lord's will.